Tennessee Williams was, is maybe the greatest American playwright, one of the two anyway. He, um, Glass Menagerie is one of his plays. Streetcar Named Desire. Stella! Anybody? Anybody? That's him. Uh, he also wrote some short stories and some other things. My, my favorite Tennessee Williams short story is one called Something by Tolstoy. The reason it's my favorite one is because it's the only one I've ever read. But aside from that, it's really good. Uh, great storyteller and spoiler alert. Uh, plug your ears if you want to read that on your own. But I want to tell you that the story of this story, Something by Tolstoy. It's the story of a young man named Jacob. And uh, all Jacob wanted in life was to marry his high school sweetheart, a gal named Lila. And he did. Um, and they, they went away to, uh, to college. Maybe they got married then. I don't exactly remember. But they were away, and they got word that Jacob's dad died suddenly. And so this was the plan all along. It just happened sooner than they thought. They, they moved home to take over the family business that Jacob inherited from his dad. He ran a bookstore. Um, this was back when people actually read books were the things they have hard covers and like pages and people used to buy them. Um, and they lived in an apartment above that bookstore and like Jacob's life was complete. This is everything he wanted in life. But his wife Lila was restless. She'd been gone for just a little bit. She wanted adventure. She wanted to see the world. And one day uh, she could sing like mad and one, one day she was discovered by something of a, of a talent scout or something who invited her to leave with him and go tour Europe chasing a singing career and she decided to do that. And there's this terrible scene in the story where she's in the bookstore by the door, bags packed and Jacob, her husband, gives her a key to the bookstore and thus their apartment and says, hang on to this, you're going to need this. Your love is not so much less than mine that you can just let go of it. Like, that's not how love works. And I will be here waiting. She gave him a kiss and left. Jacob was so crushed, he did, he, he did or it happened to him what happens to many of us when we're dealing with intense pain. We get very inward focused when we're hurting. It's hard to see outside of our pain. And he retreated for escape into his books. He spent like every waking minute in the adventure land of novels and stories. It was just escapism. And he lived there. And just in his bookstore, he was kind of a hermit. And he just could not see anything outside of his own hurt until he almost forgot what he was hurting about. Like, pain gets to be self-regenerating uh, almost like that. And 15 years later, the doorknob of the bookstore turns and in walks Lila. And she looks different, but it's her. She comes up to the counter, and Jacob has been so changed by his pain he doesn't, he doesn't recognize her. He just says, do you want a book? 
And she realizes like, he doesn't know who I am. Or maybe he does and doesn't want me. So she tries to jog his memory. And she says, I, I want to read a story, but I, I don't remember the title. It's a story of young newlyweds who moved back home to start their life, but the wife was restless and ambitious, and she took off to chase success, and she found it, but she couldn't forget the love of her husband, and she came home. And Jacob was quiet for a minute and said, that sounds familiar. I think it's something by Tolstoy. And he turned around to go look through his books, and she drops the key and runs from the store. And that's how the story ends. It's a terrible story. <laughs> Why do you tell me stories like that? It was such great storytelling. And there's so much human nature in that. There's the human nature of the person like Lila who just wants more and doesn't see that she's been given what she really needs, but she thinks there's more out there. And it's the story of the person who gets locked inside his depression, his hurt, his pain. He can't see anything outside of his pain. Even he so forgets the, the, the cause even of his pain that when his hope and his joy is standing right in front of it, he can't see it for the pain. The Apostle Paul tells us that the nation of Israel was kind of like Jacob in that story. By Paul's day, even, Israel had been so mistreated, exploited, defeated, stepped on, abused, had so much pain and hurt that when God finally sent Israel's Hope, the Savior, the Messiah, the King, the Christ. They couldn't, they didn't recognize their hope. The, the cure for their pain was right there. And it's like they thought he was just another customer in the bookstore. Paul's been, been teaching us for a couple of weeks about why Israel rejected Jesus. Today, Paul wants to tell us like what has to happen before someone will accept Jesus. I'm going to call these things the ingredients of a conversion. What has to happen before someone out there will be, we call it, converted to Christ. And then Paul wants to tell us, he wants to kind of lift up Israel as that example again and to look at Israel, like, where did this fall apart? What did Israel not have that it needed to believe? And so what can we learn about us from that example? That's what we want to talk about today in Romans chapter 10. We're really going to study verses 14 through 21. But uh, I'm going to add verse 13. We studied this last week, but... It, but uh, Today's passage jumps off from verse 13. We, start, we left last week's passage right here. Paul wrote, Romans 10, 13, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And in this context, the, the Lord is Jesus. 
And to call on the name of the Lord is to call on Jesus' character, his promise to save those who call on him. To, no one will call on Jesus unless they understand they need rescued, and he is the only rescuer. So that's, that's where we left last week. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But what has to happen before someone will do that? That's where we sort of dive in today, Romans 10, verse 14. But how then will they call on him in whom they haven't believed? And how will they believe in him who they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For like Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Verse 18. But I say, surely they've never heard Israel, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And then Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest or clear to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, God says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. There's our passage. And as I said, Paul uh, begins. Uh, he has already said, whoever calls on the name of Jesus and asks to be saved, Jesus will save anybody who calls out to him and asks. And then in verse 14 and the first part of verse 15, Paul tells us all the stuff that has to happen before that can happen. Uh, John Stott in his... Um, commentary in the book of Romans said, basically, if we want to understand this best, if we take Paul's verbs, and I have them underlined on the screen, if you can see that, if you take Paul's verbs and just read them backwards, that's like the ingredients of a conversion. Um, people, somebody has to be sent out with the gospel. That person who's sent has to preach or proclaim that gospel and not just like what I'm doing right now preaching anybody who knows the gospel can proclaim it and then someone has to hear what the person who is sent preaches before they can believe and then when somebody believes in Jesus they will call on him and he will save them that's that's what has to happen before somewhere someone will call on the name of the Lord and be saved, be rescued by God, be redeemed. This is why, by the way, our church uh, does a couple of different things that we do. This right here is why, um, if you look at our website sometime, I took like our mission statement and the, the Great Commission uh, and, and, one, uh, and a verse in, in, that Paul wrote to Timothy, and kind of boiled it down to three words. The, the, the top of our website says, reach, teach, repeat. 
That's what we're doing here. We, you, you are here somehow uh, you were reached out to, whether it was hearing a, a sermon online, whether someone invited you, somehow you were, were, were reached out to to be here. And now I want to, part of my job, the biggest part of my job is to open the scriptures and equip us all. Why? So that we can go out and reach someone else with the gospel. And we're going to equip them to reach someone else. That's the Great Commission. That's how this works. That's what Paul said. People, whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how's your co-worker? How's your neighbor? How's your cousin going to call in the name of the Lord if they've never heard of him? If you don't hear the gospel, how are they going to hear the gospel if someone doesn't tell them? How is someone going to tell the gospel if they are not sent out, equipped with it? That's why our church... Um, helps fund like this part. We fund missionaries, missions efforts. Last year, um, the, the board, with the support of the church, we decided to increase our, our annual commitments to missionaries by $75,000 a year last year. Um, and we'll give way more than that. Why? Because we want on college campuses the gospel. We want some fledgling church plants that are trying to start in, in Colorado Springs and up in a Hispanic community in Vancouver, Washington. We want the gospel. Um, around the world, we want the gospel. God gives us the opportunity to be involved in the ingredients of conversions, of sending the gospel. And it's the most beautiful process in the world. And I use the word beautiful intentionally because of what Paul says right after this. The second part of verse 15, Paul quotes a couple of Old Testament prophets. Nahum said this. Isaiah said this. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Uh, in the ancient Near East, so this, what's on the screen here was not original with Paul. It's way older than Paul. In the ancient Near East, and this was true in Paul's days too, but if, if news needed to travel, like you couldn't send an email, right? You couldn't even send really mail mail. Somebody had to somehow like run, walk, ride from town to town to share news. And there's... And this may not catch us in our modern era, but saying how beautiful are the feet of somebody who brings the news, there's a paradox there. Because in the ancient world, if you wore rough sandals in that hot and dirty climate and ran from one village over the hill and through the woods to the next one, one thing your feet were not is beautiful. Okay? I don't even want to see your feet, and you guys bathe regularly. Nobody wants to see that. Uh, in the ancient world, feet were, feet were nasty. Okay? But the, the prophet said, if someone goes through the effort to bring a message and the news is good, how beautiful are those nasty, gnarled, smelly feet of the person who peddled their way to bring us that news? 
Paul says, in this context, the people who are involved in delivering this good news, the gospel, it, that's what makes their feet beautiful. And if their feet are beautiful, the rest of them are way better even than that. We spend, as Americans, we spend so much money and time and effort trying to make ourselves beautiful, trying to make ourselves handsome, keep ourselves looking just so. And we miss out on the way that God tells us we can be beautiful to him. Is It's just such a privilege that God allows us to be involved in the process by which God rescues people from condemnation for eternal life. Like he allows us to be involved. And it's always beautiful. And I want you to notice, Paul does not say it's really beautiful when one person convinces another person to become a Christian. It's not what he says. What's beautiful is when one person goes through the effort of delivering the good news. What keeps us from talking to people about, about Jesus, about the gospel, about our faith? I mean, it's terrifying at times, isn't it? Why? Mostly because we think they'll reject the message and the messenger. That's why we want to wait till we think they are. We can be sure they're going to agree with us. It's really important to remember what's beautiful to God is being the messenger that delivers the good news. And Paul's going to say next, it's really between that person and the Lord whether or not they accept. But the messenger is beautiful regardless of the, of the results. So, so far, Paul has said, here's the ingredients of the gospel. And it's really beautiful when people deliver news like this. And most of the rest of this passage from here on out is Paul going to be saying, so what happened with Israel? Why didn't they believe in Jesus? And why aren't most Jews accepting their Messiah? And it's really important to remember what makes us beautiful in the Lord's eyes is taking the risk and taking the effort because the next thing Paul says is not everyone will welcome the beautiful message. Okay, some people find the beautiful message what? Who is that? Disgusting, that's right. That's disgust. Um, some people, it's find the beautiful message uh, offensive, foolish. Not everyone welcomes the good news. Paul says, not all have obeyed, or your Bible might say accepted or believed, which is fine, the good news. And Isaiah told us this was coming 700 and some years before Jesus um, in the, the suffering servant passage that's obviously about Jesus, the messenger says, God, who has believed our report? And the, and the, 
And the context and the idea behind that is, God, nobody is believing the good news. Paul says, that's what Isaiah told us was going to happen. We'll deliver the message and the people will reject it. So Paul says, faith comes from what's heard. He said that in the ingredients of the gospel, but it's what is heard that comes through the preached word of Christ. Here's what I'm convinced Paul is saying right there. Sometimes on some magic day, when someone hears and the gospel clicks and they believe, and so they call on the name of the Lord to be saved, they might have heard um, a pastor. They might have heard their brother-in-law. They might have heard their coworker share the gospel. They might have read with their eyes from the Bible or from a tract or from something online. But when someone believes in Jesus, they actually hear him preach. This preached word of Christ, I think this is when people believe, they hear Christ speaking to them. Do you know this happens? Someone can hear the gospel 10, 20, 30, 80, 100 times and nothing. And then at some point, they sort of their heart, their ears might hear someone else, but their heart hears from Jesus. The Holy Spirit, right to their heart. This happens. This happens even for those of us who are already Christians. I can see it happen from up here. You know I'm watching you people, right? I see this happen. I give one sermon each week. And I, and I can see in your eyes, I'll look at one person and, and maybe his eyes are, are filling with tears at something that, that has been said. And it's just really, or I see people look around thinking, like, he's talking to me, right? Or he's talking about me. You ever had that experience where you get nervous? Like, did you tell him what we've been talking about? Why is he talking about me up there? Right? And again, I see somebody and, and their eyes, they get tears and their lip quivers. And I know, hey, the Lord is working on somebody's heart right here. And here's how I know it's not me, because I can look across the aisle and someone else's eyes are getting really heavy and they're getting, <laughs> right, your head's falling off. Right? What's, listen, uh, this, I know the, 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 the golden sounds of Matt Maxwell can put you to sleep. I'm aware. But when Jesus talks to you, it's different. I think that's what Paul's talking about. Like this happens. That's why, again, it's important to remember, we just need to put on the beautiful feet and deliver the message and pray and ask God to speak to somebody's heart. Faith comes when God speaks through a speaker, through a website, through the radio, through a track, through the Bible, and in someone's heart. And not everyone, not everyone will be spoken to in such a way. And what Paul's going to tell us next 
not everyone's even open to listen. Because now Paul is going to hold up Israel. Now he's going to, here's our example. What happened with Israel? Paul has two sort of rhetorical questions. Here's the first one. Why doesn't Israel accept Jesus? Question one. Maybe they didn't hear. That's verse 18. He says, but I ask. It's like he, like he can imagine someone raising their hand in the back and say, hey, maybe Israel just never heard this. Maybe that's the reason. That's where this whole thing broke down. And Paul says, that's not it. They have. They have heard. And then Paul, for his proof that Israel has heard the gospel, Paul says this. Their voice is, this is from the Psalms, by the way. Uh, their voice, the preachers, the proclaimers of the good news, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. That, Paul says, that's how I know Israel has heard. This is not the proof Paul necessarily had to give. Paul could have said this, Israel has heard. You know how I know? I've told them. I travel around and start in a synagogue and I tell the Jews the good news and they won't listen. He could say, my friends, the other apostles, the original disciples, they went all through Israel. Same thing. Nobody's buying. But instead, Paul says this. The voice of the proclaimers has, has gone out to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Here's what Paul is not saying. Paul's not saying Israel has heard because the entire globe has heard the gospel. Paul's not saying that. One, because that's not true. But mainly, two, because Paul knew that wasn't true. When we get toward the end of this book, Paul's going to tell the Romans, I want you to use you guys. I want you guys to help me go into Spain. You know why? Because the gospel hasn't been to Spain. Paul's going to say that. He knows the gospel hasn't gone anywhere. So why is this Paul's proof? What's he saying? Here's what he's saying. Uh, you've probably heard this. As far as the order of events in God's plan with the gospel, God said the gospel was going to go to somebody first and then to somebody else. Who first? Gospel was for the Jew first. And then to the Gentiles. So here's what Paul's saying. Look around. The church is full of predominantly what kind of people? Gentiles. So we know this process by which someday the good news is going to circumnavigate the whole globe. Paul says that has already started. And it wouldn't have started unless God had already told the Jews first. Paul says, we can't say Israel hasn't heard. They have, or God wouldn't be telling all the rest of us filthy Gentiles. So that's not their problem. Their problem is not that they haven't heard. Paul says, here's another possibility. Maybe someone will say this. Well, the gospel's maybe just too complicated. They just couldn't understand it. It's like trigonometry. And Paul says very plainly, um, for, that's not it. That's not it. Then Paul says this. Moses said, I'm going to make you, Israel, jealous by people who aren't even a nation, that's the church, with a senseless nation, I'll provoke you, Israel, to anger. And Isaiah is bold enough to say, this is from God, I was found by those who didn't seek me. I became well known to those who didn't ask for me. Here's how Paul answers this question. Why? So why didn't Israel believe? Maybe it's because the gospel's just too complicated. They couldn't figure it out. 
Paul says, that's not it. We can go all the way back to the first five books of the Bible when Moses was writing. And Moses said, someday, God's going to go outside of Israel and convert uh, people who don't know God. And he calls them uh, a senseless people or nation. What's another word for, that Paul might have used besides senseless right there? Maybe not too bright. Well, it's, it's, it can't be too complicated. The Gentiles are none too bright. They get it. That's what he says. Then he says, and God said, I would be found by people who weren't even looking for me. I'll become well known to people who weren't even asking for me. Like our ancestors way back, almost all of us, our ancestors, Northern and Western uh, Europeans, Germanic, uh, warrior, pagan as the day is long, marauding, uh, idol-worshiping, polytheistic people. Had, had no idea there was one true God. We're trying to pass judgment with one true God because they didn't even believe in him. Somebody shows up with the gospel and they understand it. They have no religious background to get it. Paul says, that's what's going on with the Gentiles. Don't tell me Israel can't understand this. They, they're the ones that have all the evidence that proves it. Listen, the gospel can be hard to believe. But the gospel is not hard to understand. There are plenty of atheists who can tell you what the gospel says. Um, is it Richard Dawkins? Is Richard Dawkins the one in the wheelchair with ALS or is that the other guy? I get him confused. Richard Dawkins is not the guy in the wheelchair with ALS, right? But Richard Dawkins is one of the, uh, Stephen Hawking is that guy. Richard Dawkins, one of the world's leading atheists. He can tell you the message of the gospel. I've heard him do it. He doesn't believe it for a second. Okay? The gospel's not hard to understand. But for some, it's hard to believe. The gospel's simple. You know the gospel? Here it is. Listen, there is a God who's perfect, and he requires righteousness to live with him after death. You are not righteous, nor am I. We all fall short of the required level of righteousness. God promised to punish all unrighteousness, and so we deserve punishment. That's the bad news. However, God promised to save some, to forgive the sins of some, and let them into heaven with him anyway. How can God do both of these things? How can God punish the unrighteous like he promised and yet forgive sin and let some of us into heaven. That's the cross. God sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfectly righteous life. He's the only human being who never deserved any punishment from God. And when he went to the cross, what was happening is God was placing all of our punishment on him, which means every spanking you ever deserved, every session and timeout you ever deserved, 
every fine you ever deserved, every prison sentence that was ever uh, served, every anger that was ever deserved toward you, all of the punishment of all of our sin was poured out on him as a substitute for us. And God said, if you believe that that's what Jesus was doing, I will count his righteousness on your account. That's not complicated. He was punished instead of me. He was punished instead of you. That's the gospel. It's not hard to understand. So why did Israel reject it? Paul's already told us that. Paul told us over the last couple of weeks, it was because Israel, the first part of believing, accepting the gospel is believing that I'm not righteous. And Israel was out. Who are you to tell me I'm not righteous? I'm the one that's following the law. I'm the one that's doing all the religious things to make up for any mistakes I may have made. Israel, Paul said, didn't, he, they wouldn't accept a gift of righteousness because they wanted a righteousness of their own. And so Paul comes to this conclusion. That Israel has rejected Jesus is not God's fault. Verse 21, Paul says, but about Israel, God said, all day long, I held out my hands to this disobedient and stubborn people. You know, Paul sounds very different at the end of this chapter than he did at the end of the previous, during the previous chapter. Chapter 9 was all about those really hard uh, ideas of God choosing some and not choosing other and election and predestination and all, all that stuff that makes our head hurt to even think about it. And it's all true. But it doesn't make this not true. God said, I have invited everyone to believe and accept and especially Israel. I just continually, constantly hold out my hands in an offer of salvation and they keep Resisting, rejecting, and otherwise giving me the stiff arm. Jesus said the same thing at the end of his ministry. Toward the end of his life, Jesus was standing looking out over Jerusalem. And in Matthew 23, Jesus just mourning. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I, would I, would I, I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. I would have. I was willing. You not willing. That's whose fault it is. We go back through the ingredients of, of conversion. Somebody has to be sent. Were people sent to Israel? Yes. Did they know the gospel? Yes. Did they preach the gospel? Yes, did Israel hear the gospel? Yes. But they would not believe the gospel. And no one will call out to Jesus to rescue them who don't believe the gospel. And Paul says, that's Israel's fault, not God's. That's our passage. Israel 
refused to believe, rejected Jesus. But this passage isn't just for Israel. Not, for a long, not by a long shot. Paul sent this letter to a predominantly Gentile crowd. And we're supposed to take some things and learn some things from this passage. I think I want to boil them down to two things. First, from this passage, we are encouraged this, to put on beautiful feet. God allows us the privilege of being involved as he rescues people and the effort of equipping people, whether that is financial giving, supporting, or, or sharing the gospel. The effort is always beautiful in God's sight. How will they hear unless somebody tells them? Those of us who have called on the name of the Lord and are saved, I think Paul encourages us, put on beautiful feet, take a risk. It's worth it. This passage speaks to someone else this morning too. This passage speaks to, to a person who has never cried out to the Lord Jesus, called out to him and say, Jesus, would you save me? I believe you can save me. Would you do that? Have you done that? Have you asked? Have you asked Jesus to be your savior? And if not, why not? So I think if that's you, you're right where Israel was in this passage. You can't say, well, I've never heard. Because you have. And you can't say it's too complicated. Because it's not. So what keeps you? What keeps you from just saying, I, like, I, I'm going to be in real trouble before the God of the universe if I'm not rescued by the God of the universe. What keeps you? From the, do, do you have just some hang-ups about this Christianity thing? You know what I mean by hang-ups? Do you have some questions? You say, well, I don't think I can believe in a God. You know, the Bible talks about, the Bible talks about slavery, like God allows slavery. I don't think I can believe in a God that allows slavery. I would love to visit with you about that. It is not what you think. We've been talking about it in Sunday school. We can answer that hang-up. Or... How, how, can I, how can you believe in a God who says he's in control and he's good, but a 17-year-old kid was killed in Bridgeport two nights ago? But my, I'm struggling with infertility. Is that your hand? How does a good God allow evil things? These are real things. Is that... If I ask you why, what keeps you from like being a Christian, calling out to be saved? Is it hangups like that? I don't have time to go through them all. I would love to visit with you about them. But this morning, I just want you to consider this. Be honest with yourself and answer this question for me. If I went through those hangups with you and I gave you reasonable answers, would you believe in Jesus then? Or if you're honest, would you just move on and find a different hang-up? Because in my experience, what I've found is the hang-ups aren't actually the hang-ups. The hang-ups are what keep me from having to submit to a God. I don't want 
Paul said last week, we have to say Jesus is Lord. And that's usually what stops us. Like, I don't want to be all Jesified, and I'm probably going to change. Like, it's scary. I'm going to lose control. If it's your hangups, I would love to visit with you about your hangups. But if it's not really the hangups, I want you to consider something else. Whatever it is you're scared of, here's what you're scared of. I, I don't want to miss out on or lose. There's something in my life that I am I'm chasing, I'm pursuing, that's my identity, that's something that I don't think I can lose. I want to tell you, whatever it is you are chasing finds its completion in Jesus Christ only. I think I can prove that to you. What if... What if really you're, you're, you, want, like, you want success in your career, in athletics, in whatever? Success is what you're chasing, and you're afraid Jesus is going to make you too nice and kind, right? So I just want to keep pushing success. What you really want is significance. You want to be impressive. You want to be better. Do you know, faith in Jesus Christ makes you a, a son or a daughter, the God of the universe. There's nothing more significant. Maybe you want love. Maybe I know some things I'm doing in my personal life are not. God wouldn't like it, and I can't give that up because I, I just want to be loved and cared for. And that's how I get it. There is nothing better than being loved by the God of the universe. Maybe you want Riches. Faith in Jesus Christ makes you an heir, a co-heir with Jesus Christ. One day you will inherit everything Jesus inherits from his dad. There is all of our hopes, all of our, our real pleasures are found in Christ alone. It may not be today. I'm not telling you you're going to get riches. You're going to be richer next week than you are this week if you accept Christ. That's, I don't preach that false gospel. But one day, you really will have it all if you have Christ and you will have nothing if you don't. And here's what I don't want. I don't want this to be your something by Tolstoy moment. Remember the story at the beginning, that terrible story? where Jacob was locked in his pain and his real hope walked out and left the bookstore, don't let Jesus drop the key and leave the bookstore on you. That is your hope, your only hope in the end. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, Paul said elsewhere. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and whoever doesn't won't. What keeps you from believing in the gospel, crying out to Jesus? Let's pray and we'll finish our time. Father God, um, we talked this morning about you speaking straight to people's hearts at times. And I joke about it, but I, I do not know when that happens, Lord. But if there is someone here that you have been speaking to their heart, to his heart, to her heart. 
God, will you be persistent in that pursuit? To help them understand that they, they do not have the righteousness they need before God. That they need your righteousness as a substitute, Lord Jesus. Would you encourage them to believe in you, to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. We thank you for your promise to save all of us who call on the name of the Lord. His name is Jesus and in his name we pray. Amen.